Welcome to Find the Magic, the podcast that will help you honor yourself, your kids, and your partner. We'll give you tips and strategies to create peace and authenticity within your family. We inhale a ridiculous amount of books and life tools and distill the information for you. I'm Terilyn Griffin. I'm Caitlin Gabriel. And I'm Felicia Allen. Let's find the magic together. All right, everyone, welcome to Find the Magic. We have Joe Newman back for part two to talk to us some more about setting boundaries and being the counterbalance to our little lions so we can help raise strong kids. But to do that, we have to be strong ourselves. So welcome back, Joe. It's so nice to be here. We have some amazing listener questions we're going to go through with you. So many requests for questions for us to go go through. So we're super excited. And can I just insert, guys? I have to say, because you guys already, Felicia's already interviewed Joe, so you already know that she thinks he's fabulous. But this is, I think, the first time we've ever had. We've done a full episode on Joe and his work, <laughs> his entire book, Raising Lions. And then this is our second interview with him. So, I mean, as you can tell, we are about as fangirl as we can get here. <laughs> so thank you for coming on again. I just love everything you have to say, and I'm thrilled about these questions, I think they're really going to apply to so many people. And these are your guys' questions directly. So we are so excited. Joe, I, I wanted to say one thing and see if you can speak to this a little bit. Something that your book, that I love about your book is it gave me, I feel like I had the permission to parent, which I think is something that's a little bit lost in our culture right now. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think this ties into something that um, we're talking about right before we got started, right? Which is that parents are asked to be these sort of almost supernatural creatures who, with these abilities that are beyond what is, is normal, like to stay calm while being, you know, disrespected, to use just, to, to have some sort of magic ability to do language and to in such a way to convince children to control themselves at all every moment. And if you, if your children aren't controlling yourself, you're often judged for that. Right. So I think that part of this is uh, that there's a pathologizing of aggression. Okay. So uh, children are aggressive. It's natural. It's okay. It's healthy. It's a, like an exploratory tool. Um, there's nothing wrong with aggression, uh, but we treat it like it's a disease. And because we treat it like a disease, we don't speak to it directly. And my book is from the perspective of, of you know, a child who is aggressive. Uh, you know, as a man, I'm, I'm aggressive. Now I learned how to model that and do that channel in a healthy way. But I don't have any problem with aggression. And I don't resent it from ch- for children. And I think the book gives permission to meet aggression with healthy aggression. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so this, you can see that the... The pathologizing of aggression has been institutionalized. It's been taught to us in our culture, and it prevents us from speaking to our children in the language in which they are often communicating and often learning. So do you think we we either feel shame about their aggression or go into disregarding their reactions because they're showing them with physical force and we're like, that's bad. And we kind of shut it down. Do you see that as like the problem with how we deal with their aggression? You hit the nail on the head with the word shame, right? Because when, when a child is aggressive towards us, I mean, part of what's happening in that moment, maybe the most important thing is they're saying, I'm here. I have power. Are you here? Mm -hmm. You have power. Mm -hmm. I have these feelings. Do you have feelings like this? Okay. And when we respond to aggression with just sort of more explanation, but not an actual action that asserts our will, uh, we're basically saying to the child, you're the only one who has aggression and that's a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Aggression's bad. I don't have it. You have it. And that develops shame. Mm -hmm. So the passive communication response that tries to give a reason and, and a moral almost moral manipulation to get them to stop aggression rather than meeting the aggression with healthy aggression creates shame around the aggression. And then you have a child who's conflicted and they have, because they have these natural urges 
and they've built these models about how things work. So they're testing and pushing where they, they know it's effective. But then we're talking to them about how aggression is bad. And it just makes, you know, for anxious, conflicted children. But if you can meet that aggression naturally and directly, all of a sudden, you know, they'll take a sigh of relief. You can own being a parent and assert your needs and everything can start to shift. So how do we, because in your book, you talk about meeting the hand. So our, you know, our kids coming in with this sort of energy and, you know, we can, we can either push back really strongly or become really permissive, but there's like that nice middle ground. Is that in our tone or our, our body language? How do we meet them? So say, you know, one of our questions, and we got this reoccurring over and over from probably 10 people. And every time we have listener questions, this it's some version of my ex-year-old, it doesn't really matter. I mean, going up to whatever age is hitting me, hitting siblings, hitting the dogs, hitting, you know, people at the park. So it is that aggression coming out, you know, they're yelling at me, bad mom hitting me. So in real life example, how can we be that meet the meet them there in that moment without shame right so you want to you have to assert your will and you have to frustrate that behavior and you have to frustrate it with actions not shame or moralizing so a simple thing i mean andy cohen asked me the other day he said you know my son hit me during breakfast two and a half year old leaned over smacked me in the face uh and he said i picked him up i said you know you get a break you sit down and he starts you know he's got big eyes and tears are running down his face and he said what do you do you know when you're conflicted like that and i said it's great you did you know you moved him to a break that's firm he's frustrated he's got to sit but now you can also be nice about it i get it breaks for a drag mm-hmm. i know it's frustrating i i when you're done crying, you'll sit quietly and we'll come back. I'll wait. So your tone is empathetic and respectful. Mm-hmm. Your consequence is strict and frustrating. Mm-hmm. It's predictable. It's not yielding. Okay. So being these two things at the same time is what we often have a problem with. So with hitting, that needs to be frustrated in the moment. And now you need a break. Now you need to sit. Because what you're looking for is that moment of dysregulation has to be met with a moment of required regulation. And that is often frustrating. It's at least boring, you know? Mm-hmm. And so you're going to be very strict in terms of finding immediate ways to address that, not long-term, but immediate, right? And then match it with a tone that lets you stay in the coaching mode as opposed to the judge. Can you walk us through for those listeners, because we have a lot of new listeners all the time, maybe who have not heard our other interview with you or read your book yet. Can you walk us through two things? One, can you share with us? Cause your experience in this matter is so extensive. <laughs> so, I mean, when you say, when you just use that tone of voice and you said, a break is a drag, I'm going to wait here with you. Like I felt soothed. <laughs> yes, I can do this. And I can tell you have experience with kids who are losing it. So can you just give yeah. us a quick, your experience in this, because you have a really cool experience. And then second of all, could you walk our, especially new listeners, just to run them through. So what does a break actually look like? And when do you, when do you have your kids take breaks? Right. Okay. So my experience is that I was a kid who was the poster child for hyperactivity, which was later called ADHD. It was pre the ADHD label. I was, um, you know, when my parents, my mom would bring me to the playground, she said, you know, the other parents would spot her and me coming and they would gather up their kids, kids as quickly as they could and they'd leave. So I always had an empty playground. <laughs> and um, and in school, you know, I was just constantly being told what I was doing wrong. Like 99% of what any came out of any adult's mouth was Joey, stop, bump. Joey, no blank. Joey, that's the wrong, you know. So that shapes your your person, you know. You, 90%, that becomes your identity. Uh, it's not a good identity. And you become very defensive and reactive and defiant um, as a consequence of all that negative mes- messaging. So when I worked that out um, in the years after I left school out in the world, 
you know, I, I, I realized that kids just needed to have a different experience. Kids who were in that same position and that I had an, you know, I had a, and I did, I had a natural ten, um, inclination to work with those kids. I was kind of good at it off the bat. I walked in, I literally walked into an elementary school um, when I realized this and I said, I want to volunteer. I had my own business. I said, I want to volunteer. I'll work three hours a day, five days a week with the kids that are driving your teachers crazy. And this was an inner city school. The principal, the vice principal, just, you know, no background check, no fingerprints, didn't know me for anybody. He just liked me. And he said, come on in. And he <laughs> gave me to the, t- he like, he said he's he gave me to the toughest kid at the school who was a second grader who's driving everybody crazy, but it was a natural fit. So that's the background part. And then for, you know, 30 years, I sort of worked, I sought out and worked with the most difficult kids because I, I like, that's what I like. You know, I like those kids. And in terms of the break method, the thing to know about the break method on a, I'm going to try and do the, the 60 second version, right? Breaks have two, two components, a structure and a relationship. You'll hear the structure, which is, uh, you know, very clear steps that happen, which are action steps. Okay. And then you'll hear a relationship, which is a tone of respect, of giving autonomy, of not giving information children can figure out themselves because that causes another problem. So the steps of a break, you know, let's just say with a four-year-old is... I need you to take a break. Like, let's say they throw their toy across the room and, uh, or maybe just, you know, uh, zips past your head an inch across. And then you go, all right, uh, Brian, I need you to take a break for a minute. And without getting up, you ask that child to move to a spot close by, maybe three feet away. And they're probably not going to do it the first time you do it. You can say, look, if you don't take the break, you get the longer break mm-hmm. and it might second one might be three minutes mm-hmm. and you say, I'll let you decide. But in a moment, the break becomes the long break and you take a breath and you kind of look away for a moment and then you count five, four, three, two, one. And then you look back and you see if their butt is in the seat. You asked him to put it in <laughs> very specific. And if it's not, you go, Oh, now you have the three minute break. And they scream and yell, I don't want it. Or maybe they run over and they go, I'm going to take the one minute. And then they jump back up and you say, well, in five more seconds, you don't take the three minute break. I have to sit with you and you do the very long break. I'll let you figure it out. It's up to you. And you go through the counting again. And now if they haven't moved to sit, you get up and you move them and you sit there and you make sure that they finish that break. And the way they finish that break has to be, it doesn't start until they're quiet. No break starts until they're quiet. They have to self-regulate. They have to not pull against you. Some parents end up having to hold their children and wait until that tantrum finishes the first couple of times. And then when it finishes, they sit quietly for three minutes. And then they sit uh, while you're sitting with them and then two minutes on their own. Now, that process, you can see on my website, on the YouTube channel. And the important thing to know, and one of my clients pointed this out because she, she watched a video and she said, that's not how it looks at my house. <laughs> it's a mess. They're screaming and yelling and all over the place. Well, in a sense, what I'm showing you on the YouTube channel is what it will look like probably the 10th or 30th time you've done it. And it looks messy at first because you you have to set the pattern, allow it to move through, allow them to learn. That's why you're not moving toward them, right? Mm-hmm. You want them to learn to regulate. You want, a t- you want a tool and you want the kind of respect where you can say, I need you to take a break. And they move and have that break while you're finishing dinner. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to put that down while you're feeding the baby. <laughs> you know, you've got a lot going on. So you, you don't want a tool that builds in another tougher job where you always have to move and sit with them. You, that's why the one minute and the three minute they do on their own and you have to let them fail to do that a number of times before it becomes second nature and they do that. And can I do a testimony to when it is, it is hard because anything new is something that they have to learn, but it does move into exactly what you're saying. If I tell my kids to take a break, they go and they sit and they don't cry or do anything else in between now after, but it's yeah. been, you know, 
six months or so of, of doing consistent breaks. So you kind of slightly hinted at something that I think is very important, and that is it's not a punishment for specific action that you then do a lecture about. It's we just need a second. It's not even about who did what and the blame. And so he hit me, so he needs a break. Like, don't get into that. It's this is a little much. Everybody needs to take a little bit of a break. Or this is getting a little bit out of control. Can you go take a break for me? And I think that clarification of not guilting, lecturing, going into this like specific action really helps with uh, kind of like neutralizes the environment of the break a little bit. Is that something you recommend or is this something I've just like picked up on while doing it? No, intuitively you kind of honed right in because that's exactly what, for me, I'm, I'm, I'm almost a freak about don't tell them why. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Because I heard why my whole life. That was the messaging. Mm -hmm. Joey, stop. Joey, this, that's wrong. Keep your hands to yourself. Sit back down. Don't call out. You know, it was negative, 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 negative. So when I hear all, even if it's like, you don't, it's not nice to hit your sister, take a break. I don't say that it's nice to, it's not nice to hit your sister part. I just say, take a break Mm -hmm. because, and this actually ties in to the most recent psychological studies of adults. There's a great book um, by Jonathan Haidt called um, The Righteous Mind. And one of the things that he says is that there's a, they did a study and they, they gave people a moral dilemma that was sort of outside of their usual consideration. And when they gave them the dilemma and they asked them what their opinion was, and they asked them to make that decision right on the spot after reading it, everyone reverted back to their old thinking and which is confirmatory thinking, which is don't change your mind and just come up with all the facts you can to support why you were right. Now, then they repeated that and they said, I want you to sit for a three minute break before you tell me the answer. Now, they didn't call it a break, but they said that three minutes. For me, I was like, I heard that's a break. They said, you know, they sit for three minutes and then tell us the answer. And the number of people who changed their minds increased 40 odd percent. Because the exploratory thinking kicks in because you're not defending yourself in that emotional moment with that instinct. Mm. So when you're giving a child a break, you are helping to develop exploratory thinking instead of reactionary thinking, instead of, you know, closed minded thinking. You're, you're teaching children how to be flexible because you didn't bring up what they did wrong uh, so that they had to defend themselves. You just said, take a break. And they go, why? You said, if you want, we can talk about it later. And I only talk about it later, like one in 20 times, because most of the time they can figure it out and it's okay. They don't need to be reminded of the thing they did wrong. They're figuring it out. They're learning through the experiences of over and over. And you have to respect that. I love that idea. So are you saying for you taking a break, it can be because of hitting or anytime things are getting a little out of control, taking a break is, so for you, it isn't like a, I have this set of rules and if they do these things, then they take a break. Are you saying that it is more of kind of an intuitive experience of they need a break right now, even if it's just they're losing it? Absolutely. That's see, that's where that's where the whole method is going. Is it what what I'm trying to do is shift out of a, a paradigm of reward and punishment and shift into shift into a paradigm of cause and effect. Reward and punishment locates the power in the parent and raises victims, okay? Cause and effect locates the power in the child and raises protagonists. Yeah. You want to protect them. Yes, amen, because they're going to become adults eventually. Exactly. That's our only real job, right? Make them help, make them healthy, able, you know, gritty adults, Mm -hmm. you know, who can find their joy. Yes. Oh my gosh, I'm loving this so much. Okay, I have a, this is just a mini question. So yeah, yeah. I am having issues with my children in the car where they start losing it. At yes. the car, I am very limited in my actions. And when I do say take a break, sometimes it doesn't really work. In fact, oh my goodness, this goes right along with one of our specific questions, which is my four-year-old takes advantage of times I'm distracted or vulnerable. And um, so car, on the phone. When you're nursing your baby, the same thing. And you had mentioned nursing a baby. If you've trained this with your children, it is easier. But... 
at what point, I mean, do you have any tips besides, so if you say it and they're obviously not obeying you and you are in this position where you cannot go and hold them, nor can you do anything physically mm -hmm. and the, you think you've trained them in taking breaks, but sometimes it's not working. What are your tips? For, what can we do with our voices besides stay calm? Yeah. What are your tips for that? Right. So, so the, this is a great question because it goes to actually how children are building models of how things work compared to how we're modeling, how we're building the model of what things work. And I was, this came to me like a week ago when I was talking to the parents of a two and a half year old and, and something you said just reminded me of it, which is, you said, what can we do differently in the tone of our voices? Okay. So the parents had said to me of the two and a half year old, they said, you know, we try this, but then he gets worse. And so we tried this other thing and then it still doesn't work. We tried this other thing and it still doesn't work. And I said, okay, you're measuring the success or failure of your interaction based on an observation that lasted 30 seconds, maybe five minutes. Your child is measuring the success or failure of their research with you based on one week models, on one month models. They're much better researchers than we are, mm -hmm. much better, because like a good scientist, they're doing repeated studies and then they're accumulating the data and that's how they're acting. So you can't do anything magical on one car ride that's going to change that situation. You have to look at five car rides, right? So you can't do anything in that magical in that one moment. It's about understanding and helping and moving to the thinking of the child and then acting accordingly. So here's a three-step plan, right, of how to do this. First, do it in the easy time. Set the pattern. So don't try and do it in an airport before you've done it at home. Don't try and do it at a birthday party when you haven't tried it, you know, at a simpler place where you're there with your partner. So do it in the easy place first. Get used to the pattern. Follow through. When parents start my method, I often say, make sure, you know, if there's two of you that you're both home. If there's one of you that maybe you have some support, and you know, and you can put your all into following through. Don't start it in a day when, you know, the day is chaotic and you got places to be. Don't have anywhere to be when you start. Make it easy. So set the pattern when you, you're really fully able. That's like do it at home. So second step, you want to do it on a car ride? I recommend doing a strategic car ride. What does that mean? Leave 20 minutes earlier than you need to to get to some place that you don't have to get to. <laughs> <laughs> and on the way there, do a break. Okay. So the second is a strategic, take a couple strategic you know, uh, goes at it. And then if they don't take it, give the burger break. If they don't take it, pull over, walk out, take them by the hand, walk out in the car, sit in the sun in, in boredom for five minutes until they're finished. Okay. Now go back. You've set a precedent now. Okay. Your kids know when you're in the car, they've got you over a barrel. That's just how smart they are. Right. <laughs> the fancier the restaurant, you know, the worse you're over a barrel. That's just how it works. So you, I have parents that plan a restaurant trip and they go, look, he always throws a big fit in the restaurant. Here's the plan. You, you know, when that happens, you're going to take him to the car and wait till it's over. And I'm going to wait here and it's all right. Or we're going to get the food to go and we're going to go home and we're going to fit, follow through. But they you create a strategic couple of events and all of a sudden you have a new precedent and it matches their research. Oh, he, they're repeating the pattern at home. They're following through. Third thing is when we're in difficult situations like a car ride or something else, we tend to create extra accommodations around behavior because we don't want to deal with it. Yes. It's really natural. Mm -hmm. You're at a birthday party. Everyone's, you know, looking nice and wanting to be, you know, social and everyone's having a good time. You don't want to ruin it. Mm -hmm. So you're creating accommodations to behavior. You usually wouldn't. Your children can see that and they will adjust accordingly and push that edge. It actually creates some anxiety because the place is not as safe because you're not as safe. Mm -hmm. You're not as real. You're, you're more movable. You're not that solid object they need to feel and come up against. So, you know, I, I once had a mom who said to me, my son always 
throws like the worst tantrums and behaves horribly whenever I go on field trips with the school. I think it was a elementary, uh, I think it was a uh, kindergarten. And she said, you know, they require me to come. I have, you know, it's like a parent participation part of the school. But whenever I come, he just acts a fool and I hate it. What should I do? And I said, when you get to the school for the trip to the zoo, I want you to find a reason in the first five minutes to give him a break. And then when you get to the zoo, I want you to find a reason in the first five minutes to give him a break again. Because you're sending a cue. I'm here. It's firm. It's the same. And he's going to cue off that. Right. So uh, that's the lean in part. So it's easy place first, strategic visit, lean in. Now those are the three. Yeah, we had a question that was... I think this would be really helpful for this listener. How can we ease into these stronger boundaries when we really haven't been setting boundaries or limits or whatever you want to call it? And I think that that recipe is perfect. It's I love the idea of setting a precedent and setting it when you are un, you're unfazed, you're unruffled, your your patient skin, like we call it, is thick because you're almost creating the situation like doing maybe they're kind of running around and being crazy as you head into the zoo it's not really that big of a deal you're not flustered but it's like you know let's go sit on this bench for a minute till we can get in the right energy to go into the zoo not a big deal i'm fine you're fine we set a precedent and i just love that because i think sometimes going from being super permissive to a stronger boundary for some parents is like oh no like What do I need? Do I need a bench? Do I need like a chalkboard? Like it sounds hard. Mm -hmm. And that makes it sound like, oh, that's nice. That's easy. Mm -hmm. So I like that recipe. Yeah. As you were talking, Joe, I ride horses. And that is literally what you do when you first get on a horse. I mean, you're you're walking them through in a round pen, something that then when you're on the road and there's a car coming by you, you can both handle it because you both established. I've established when I say turn, I mean turn. Mm. You're like, that's, I'm a firm boundary here. And we've already established this. And I actually, every single time I ride my horse, it doesn't matter how long I've done it. I still actually, we check, we recheck our communication at the beginning of every time we go on a new adventure. I've never thought of this until this very moment, but I love, I love this idea that we can, I mean, it applies to a lot of situations where if we can, it's literally like you're establishing, it's, you're establishing your relationship in this line of communication. That's very clear. And yeah. I think it makes everybody feel safe. So I really, I really like that advice. Thank you. Yeah. So, and I, I just want to point out what uh, Felicia said a moment ago is that it's so easy to do a break when it's not a charged moment. Mm-hmm. And one of the, the, the keys to success is don't wait for things to get really bad. Like if I watch a family, I'll typically see, you know, that they're ignoring a lot of moments of disrespect or being ignored or minor things, or they're using information on all these minor things. And then all of a sudden, you know, they give their two-year-old brother a big snack and then you get this big charged break. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the tone you use is only possible Felicia, when you do that early. Mm-hmm. It's like treat a break like a stoplight. Okay. Every break does not have to be like the state troopers pulling you over. Mm-hmm. You, you, you had to stop and there's a big charged event. You want this, you want breaks to feel like a stoplight. You stop, you wait, you continue. You stop, you wait, you continue. And that you take it with about as much emotional, you know, energy as you take a stoplight, which is to say very little. And this develops grit. This develops resiliency, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a relaxed way of moving through life. But you need to step into those little spaces and follow through. And it's so much easier to to set up breaks there instead of waiting for something, you know, gigantic. Yeah. And you, you mentioned respect and those little moments in our family where I feel like sometimes it's, it's hard because there's the one hand of like, you almost like want to resist bringing attention to those, but then they build up to those big moments. And we had a question from listener that said, how can we set boundaries with preteens, but I think any kids with exactly what you're saying, respectful tones when they aren't getting their way, eye rolling, mean faces, 
you know, like purposely bugging, but it's not that outward aggression of hitting, which feels, it feels really clear. Like, okay, I need to draw a boundary here with like the physical hurting. But what about all those little disrespectful little jabs for me? I just don't like that environment in my family. And, you know, we all have those days, weeks, months, whatever, where we feel that swell of like, everybody's kind of just like, like kind of they're bugging each other. The tone is disrespectful. How can we knit those little things to create a better feeling of respect in our homes? And how do we do that as a follow-up question? How can we do that while still allowing them to feel their emotions, Mm -hmm. right? So when we talk about disrespectful tone, it's difficult because we say things like set a boundary and then they can feel whatever they want to about that boundary. But at some point we say, but that's not, but that's, that's not, not okay. respectful. So yeah. yeah, help, help us with that. <laughs> yeah. But I'll start there because I think there's a difference between them having emotion and then the actions they choose to express it. Mm-hmm. So there's anger, which is fine, but there's aggression, which is going to get a consequence. Mm-hmm. It has to be met with something. So, you know, you might say, you know, I don't like you. And my response would be, I'm not surprised. You know, I just gave you three breaks in a row and you're a little frustrated. You're actually not supposed to like me. That's okay. So now on the other hand, you come over and hit me and and I'm going to say, oh, you need to take a break. And that's a long break because you hit me. So we're going right to the five minutes. And they're like, I don't like you. I'm like, you don't, you don't need to like me. <laughs> it's okay. It's a natural response. And I think that kind of language actually carries over to teenagers. Like teenagers, the conversation I have with parents of teenagers quite often is like, they're trying to have these these boundaries where they sit and and everybody agrees, and they're and then they're and then when they agree to something, and then the teenager crosses the boundary, they kind of lecture them. You know, you broke my trust. I wish you'd done this. I, you know, we talked about that. And I prefer a different conversation, which is, look, I'm going to set boundaries. You're going to cross them. I'm going to set them again, and I'm going to try and frustrate those choices. And you're not going to like it. And we're not always supposed to get along. You know, you're 14. 14-year-olds are supposed to not always like their parents. If you always like me, I'm not doing my job. But it's okay. Like, I don't take it personally. I don't care. Well, I, I, you know, I might not like it, but uh, but I need to frustrate it so that I get my needs met. Those ways I frustrate it, the boundaries I set are going to piss you off. And that's a natural response. And I'm okay with it. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Having that conversation. So there's a certain amount of that with teenagers with eye rolling and like particularly nonverbal stuff that I'm going to ignore. And I want to be a little more playful in in those areas. I I try not to be too serious about like maybe even when you take a break and your kid sticks a tongue at you, makes a face. It's like, you know, I'll wait till you're ready. When the faces are done, we can start. I mean, if you need, you got some more faces, I, you know, I'd love to see them. Let's get in there. And then when, when it's done, we'll do the break. As long as your butt got to the chair in time, you, you know, we're not going to increase the break because you're sitting there, but, and you're quiet. You know, when you, you know, if you got more faces, let's do that. And then I'll look back and when you're ready, we'll start the break. So there's a lot of stuff in there I'm not really nitpicky about. And I think, I think this actually carries over to, the tone, because lately I've been, since COVID, I'm going back to schools and summer camps and people's houses. And I just find that the tone of voice and the body language are super important. And I'm just seeing that all over the place. So I feel like the tone in which you can do it, where you you sort of are communicating almost like well, your kid's having a bad day. They're pushing. It's like what Felicia said. You can tell they're all... You can give breaks and frustrate them. You can think to yourself, okay, they need a little bit of a fight. That one needs a fight today. They need a conflict. They, For whatever reason, they've got anxiety about what's happening. They need to feel the edges. And the only way to feel the edges is to push against it. And I'm the edges. So let them push. And I'll, and I'll set that boundary. And I'm going to detach from them necessarily having a good next hour. You know, they might have a very frustrating hour and I'm going to be okay with that. Mm -hmm. You set the boundary and you follow through and you try and keep a tone like a coach. 
but you allow them to to have the consequences they're kind of asking for so they can settle the boundaries they need to settle. That's so helpful. That's so helpful. If you are a boy mama, you know how difficult it can be to find really cute options for your boys. And as a mom of one boy, soon to be two, I feel like I'm always trying to find really cute apparel for my boys and it can be really hard. So recently I came across a really cute mommy and son boutique named Jules and Co. And I have really loved it. So I have a few things for me and I got a few things for my two-year-old son and they are adorable. I've absolutely loved it. So some fun things about this company is they are family owned. Delivery only takes two to three business days and the prices are really mama budget friendly. So go check them out at Jules cobtq.com and we have a special offer for our listeners that if you use the code magic 20 you can get 20 percent off your order so go check it out what's up you guys roger jessup here with the utah house doctors so you just bought your nice new house and what happens when something goes wrong or something breaks we have you covered we have vetted several contractors whether it be from a break in your sprinkler lines or your kid punched a hole in the wall and you just need a handyman. You have access to these people by following our page. And these are people that we know and trust. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let me just make sure I understand what you're saying here. Are you saying that, and again, I'm talking from a personal place here because I have a 12 year old who is wonderful, but my issues are now, I mean, I'm never having to physically restrain her, nor is she ever hitting me. Right. But sometimes I'm not sure at what point do I need to start worrying about her tone. My personality is too generally, like you're saying, I'd rather just playfully say like, like tone doesn't really bother me too much, but when it comes to actually like behavior that matters. But for me with younger children, that's really clear for me. Like it's easy for me to differentiate behavior that needs a boundary compared to just an off tone or they're like yelling cause they're angry. So, but as she gets older, so are you saying that you don't really even worry about tone or if you have a 13 year old who's starting to yell things like, I hate you. I mean, because we have got a few questions about that, you know, what, so, you know, you have the dad saying, I won't let you talk to your mom like that. And the mom's like, but I love you. And you're (laughs) saying you hate me, you know, that experiences, but, but I'm saying, I think that's an issue for a lot of parents as their kids get older. So are you saying that you actually don't really worry about tone too much? It's just their behavior. I guess it's more complicated. So let me think it through with you. Like if I sat down, like if I sat down at a meal with a 12 year old, I'm like, God, I hate this. And I just made that meal. I, I would say, take a break. And they'd say, what? I'm just expressing my feelings. God. <laughs> and I say, you know, you're welcome to your feelings. I actually just don't want to hear some of them. It's not interesting. <laughs> personal. I worked hard making a meal. That's a feeling I don't want to hear. You're welcome to have it. <laughs> Write it in a journal. I don't know. But <laughs> maybe it's natural. But I definitely don't want to hear it at the table. So that's one you need to hold on to, you know, or put somewhere else. And these are life skills. It's like you can't go to work and go up to your boss and like, I hate you. It's like, great. (laughs) Here's your last check. You're out. I mean, that's how the world works. You you can't go to a client and say, you know, you smell bad. I don't like, you know, whatever. These are natural boundaries. And I think we should set them with our kids and like, look. You're welcome to that feeling, but I don't want to hear that. Mm-hmm. I don't. Yeah. Um, but as opposed to when you do that, it really hurts my feelings. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, and they're holding and they, power right there. Yeah. Yes. Perfect. Exactly. So, and I think a lot of the times for me, so that perfect, perfect example of the dinner, I don't want this, I hate it. 
it's like, well, great. Everybody else here is enjoying our dinner that I put work into. You go ahead and go over there with your hating of dinner. I, I don't think that's like leaning towards a punishment or a disregarding of feelings. It does just feel true in that moment. It feels like, yeah, what you're saying, that is kind of, that is like real life and how it will pan out. I don't know. We don't want to bring that energy to our table and allow that kid to take over that dinner energy. For me, it's all like the energy of the home. I yeah. I think if you're if you're a detriment to that and you're like your tantrums or whatever is taking away, just have a moment over there and then come back when you're ready to be in this like healthy environment that we have going on. And I think that feels fair and like you're you're still safe. You're still saying that's okay. You can feel that. We we need you to have a little break over here and kind of like bring it down. When you're done feeling it, come back. I think that is it it doesn't feel like a fun, punishment. It does feel accepting and fair, but like you're drawing a respectful boundary. I like it. Yeah. And I and I love what you just said also about you're giving you're giving the kid too much power when you start turning it into now I'm crying because you just insulted my dinner and all that kind of stuff. If we're completely unruffled and we can keep that coach tone. I love how you just said it's okay. Not it's okay that you don't like me. Like that I'm okay with that. That like as you can see, I'm not gonna guilt you and now you have to feel bad about you know what I mean? I actually really love that you're just keeping your own power and then you're allowing to take responsibility for their own actions. I really like that. And that kind of goes along, Joe, when you were talking about when they grow up and become adults, two questions that are just humming in the back of my mind here are, this applies to when we talk about tone of voice and saying respectful things and aggression. But I think a difficulty that most parents have is we fear that when a two-year-old hits another two-year-old, we're afraid because we do see examples of people who use their aggression as adults and it's not good for them or society and they end up in jail. So we have the fear what if they become like when you said aggression is a natural impulse, I can like hear listeners and hear people's adult brains being like, but it's, but what if they become criminals? Or when we talk about being disrespectful, none of us want our kids to grow up and yeah, saying things that get them fired. And I mean, not working well in society because we know that's not going to contribute to their happiness. So, I mean, we talk a lot about sometimes we have to we, we are pathologizing something as parents. We think that because they're doing this now, that must mean that they're going to do it for their whole lives. And we start getting in this really heavy space of like, if I don't, if I don't fix this right this very moment, are my kids going to end up in jail, right? Mm-hmm. So my question yes. for you is, how can we specifically, I guess we're kind of circling back here to aggression, but how can we be okay with a healthy amount of aggression and kind of reframe that in our minds and also kind of allow our children to learn these things along the way without feeling like it's overwhelmingly heavy for us as parents that they're going to keep with them their whole lives. That's, that's maybe too complicated. There's like seven questions. (laughs) No, I get it. No, you've gotten it. I thought you communicated it pretty clearly. So I don't like in my tone, and this is a dichotomy, right? In my tone, I don't judge aggression. In my response, I penalize it pretty hard. You know, uh, I frustrate it. Mm-hmm. In my in my relationship, I don't. Like I'm not going to judge it. And like, look, I might I might go. There's times when I'm like, you know, I just don't like that at all. And you're going to have a large consequence for that. And I and those consequences are going to continue, and they're meant to frustrate you. And so, you, even a two year old, two year old hits another two year old pick them up, carry them to another place, away from that, maybe leave the toy in question with the other two-year-old, you know, and then we sit and I, we have to wait until you're quiet. And that could take a while. And if you can't get quiet, um, you know, I, I use sand timers with two-year-olds, with three-year-olds. A little sand timer for a minute is a great a minute's a long time for a two-year-old. So you, you wait until they're quiet, and then you turn over the sand timer, and they, they watch that. And you repeat this as often as you need to. So, so I'm not saying that we should be okay with aggression happening all the time. I'm saying we need to deal with it. We should be okay with it. It's our job to, to frustrate it, and it's their job to try it. 
That's what I'm saying, being okay with. Mm -hmm. But are the kids that I work with, they aggressive after a couple of weeks? Nope, because I frustrated that. And if they are, I'm going to handle that as a matter of course. And um, one moment that sticks out is I was at a home with a family that had a, a nine-year-old who was, we started work when he was nine and he was very aggressive and he was very destructive and, and they'd been doing it for just a couple of weeks and they were, the, the mom and dad were both very physically fit. I mean, he was, you know, he was a very sporty guy. She was a, uh, like a yoga teacher. They were both, so they had no, they were like, if we need to hold him, we'll hold him. And they were, they were doing a holding protocol when he got to a certain level and they'd hold him for eight minutes. It was like, hold him for three until three minutes calm. And then he would sit for five. And um, so when I was there on a visit, he, I could see the boy was winding up and he was like on a tear. I could tell where it was going and the parents getting ready for dinner and we're sitting around the table and this, the, the boy's kind of stomping around. And I said in a tone that the boy could hear, um, I said to the parents, I said, look, if you don't mind, it looks like this is probably going to go to needing a break and maybe a holding break. Um, but I'd love to do it because I hardly get a chance anymore because uh, I'm just teaching other people how to do it. And I, and I, I don't mind. I kind of like it. I miss it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And and I said, do you mind if I do the next one? And they were like, oh, no, that'd be great. We'd love to see how you do it. And, that, you know, and because they've been doing it. And he's banging around and, you know, and I, and I told him to take a break and he ignored it. And I told him that's when he kept going. And, and so, you know, I got up from the table and was quietly kind of went over. And I think I fended off the blow for a minute. And then I wrapped him up and sat him, sat him down and we sat and, uh, and I held him and I waited. And, um, and then, you know, after about, he probably struggled for about five minutes and then he got quiet and he sat for the three minute, you know, while I held him. And then I said, are you good for, sitting on your own and walk back to the table. And even while he's quiet, I'm sort of talking to the parents over my shoulder about, you know, surfing or uh, the last ski trip they went on or something like that. And we're, we're sort of just making light banter while, while I'm holding him. And, and then I go back to the table and I'm talking and uh, five minutes are over. I say, Oh, you want to come back? And he comes back and he comes back to the table and we're sort of joking and talking again and we're back to normal. And, um, I later found out that he talked to an occupational therapist. The boy was at occupational therapy like a week later and saw my book on the shelf. And he said, do you know Joe? And she said, yeah, he's a friend of mine. And, and he said, I like Joe. <laughs> you know what I like about Joe? He's always, he's always relaxed about things. He's always sort of in a good mood. He said, and that was his memory of my visit that there wasn't a judgment attached to it. He needed, he needed a fight that day. Whatever was going on, he needed that boundary. And it was, it was a pretty physical boundary that he needed. He was getting to the point where, you know, he would knock things off the walls. He could hit his five-year-old brother. It was like, he needed that boundary and I gave it to him, but I gave it to him without a charge, without a lecture. This is what you need. You're going to get it. I'm here for you. It's done. We move on. But that strict boundary was there and he remembers it as a, as a, a positive bonding experience between the two of us, mm. which I thought was really nice to hear. Yes. I love, oh my goodness. I'm loving what you're saying. It's really making sense to me. I, the dichotomy that you just explained that really struck me is you said that you don't, when you're setting a boundary, yes, your actions are, you use the word penalize, but your actions are frustrating. That's actually my favorite word you've used. Mm-hmm. frustrating yeah your actions are frustrating to them but you are not doing it from a relational standpoint you are not breaking connection you're not breaking connection at all in fact your connection is stronger after because of your tone so and i loved when you said somehow it's almost it gives us parents permission and it gives children permission when you said their job my job is to set a boundary your job is to push the boundary and my job is to frustrate the pushing of the boundary, but that we can remain connection. And what you're saying with tone, I mean, I know we say this all the time on our podcast, but tone is key and it does take practice. And I feel yeah. like, I mean, I feel like you can get to the point where a child's behavior doesn't affect the words or the tone coming out of my mouth with practice. But so I guess, is there something that you teach though parents when you're at the beginning 
I love in your book where you say that when you're doing holding, it is not out of anger. You're not grabbing a kid and yanking them around at all. It's actually very gentle, but firm. I mean, you have to be firm because they're flailing around, but it really only works if you can maintain that relaxed, non-judgmental tone and even with your body language. But if you're a parent, I mean, I've had parents ask me, they're like, okay, so you say things like stay unruffled and be the big person in the situation. And even when your kid's losing it, you, you keep your emotions coming out clean instead of your anger rising. But I had a lot of parents say, okay, but I can't control my own anger. You know, I'm responding with anger and then I'm just feeling bad. So do you just have a, a couple words to say too? As you were, as you were talking, I was feeling inspired and I mean, I can picture it like when you're describing that kid, I can picture it in my mind and then I can hear the questions come of, okay, so what if, what if I'm not able to control my own emotions though? And obviously, I mean, we have all sorts of tips, like, are you doing things for us at the beginning of the day to make sure we're centered that we have, we call it our patient skin, that it's there, right? Are we, are we having enough solitude time on our own to recharge it? But what, what kind of tips do you have for parents who are feeling like that? Like, well, I can't control my own emotions here. So how do I expect mm-hmm. my kids to even start? Or how can I set a boundary without anger if I'm already feeling so angry because of the situation? Right. So some of this happens is just really from repetition. Okay. In some ways, I think of myself as Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. <laughs> it's like, you're seeing me on the 2000th time I'm living that same day. And so I look pretty calm about it. Because I've gone through that day for 2,000 times. And a lot of parents are going through that day for the first time. And there's nothing calm about the experience. And um, so I remember, you know, I'd, I'd have the summer off. I'd go somewhere. Then I'd come back to school. And the first day, I'd have to hold somebody. Your stomach is up in your throat. You're just like, you're wired. It's intense. The emotions are high. And nothing you're going to say is going to come out in a calm tone. That's the reality. And what I learned was don't say much. Honestly, when you have to hold your child for the first time, first of all, I think that too much talking is detrimental in that process because you're you're really going to communicate a lot of anxiety about trying to calm them down and anger at the situation. And so if I need to hold a child for the first time, they're going to be screaming and not listening anyway. I'm going to sit quietly and wait and just not say much and wait and breathe and wait and breathe. It's okay. You don't have to come up with magic words and a perfect tone in those highly charged situations. Take some breaths, relax. Don't say much. I mean, I don't say much through that whole process. Anyway, I find that kids calm themselves down much quicker when I don't. Um, I might just say, I'll wait till you're ready. That's the other last thing is think kind of script what you can say and can't say during those periods. So it might be, look, uh, um, I'll wait till you're ready. And then don't say anything for a minute. I'll wait till you're ready. Or when you're quiet, we can start. Don't say anything. Keep it limited. Don't try and reinvent the wheel or, you know, you know, be, speak like a, you know, a yoga guru in the middle of that thing. You're not going to pull that out. It's just, you know, uh, stay quiet, get used to it, relax, let them relax, and, you know, it'll come around. So you're saying practice and say less. I like practice, that. practice, say less, particularly when you're charged. You know, yeah. a lot of things can be solved when you don't try to fill that space, because a lot of times you fill that space with words. If that's that's coming out of your anxiety, and that's what you're communicating. For sure. And I think... For me, that applies to so many things in parenting where I think oftentimes we talk so much and the kid already knows not to do the thing. Mm-hmm. And then it turns into this really loaded lecture when if we were to just remove them or simply just say, go take a break or simply hold them, it becomes more pure, it feels like, unless less so much stuff put on top of it. So we wanted to finish off with one last question that kind of connects to when you can't really control a child physically and is something that I think a lot of people experience. And that is when kids are making loud noises to bug parents, other siblings on purpose. I feel like this happens in the car a lot or just all the time. I feel like my kids love this move. So can you tell us 
a concrete response that we can have to that situation. Right. So um, with most families I work with, I transition out of holding by the time the child's six, sometimes at five. So um, and what you have to do, you know, you like for a four year old, the quickest way through, particularly if you've had difficulty in aggression, is to, to use a protocol that ends in holding often with a five-year-old, same thing. But I've had cases with three-year-olds where it's a single mom and she can't hold them. So you have to create a whole protocol around a third step that's meaningful, you know, without there being physical, you know, stopping them physically. So the car, other situations are similar. You should have, you should be like, I would do a break. And it's just off the top of my head where, you know, you take the break, you don't take the break, but if you don't take the break, I start the timer and you know, that 20 minute show that you like is slowly going to get shorter until you sit and get quiet. I'll let you take, take as much time as you like, but then I, I've got a stopwatch app out that I'm holding up with the phone. Right. And that's your time. It's disappearing. Or you can do it the other way, right? Where you've got, you got 20 minutes to watch your show and that 20 minutes is getting smaller right now. Mm-hmm. And it will stop getting smaller when you control yourself and sit in the, for the long break. Because mm-hmm. I asked you for the small break and you didn't take it. Now it's the long break. Now your show is going to get smaller. I don't know how much smaller. That's not really up to me. That's up to you. Mm-hmm. But um, when you sit, it stops. I like the visual of that. And I guess my follow-up question to that, when it just comes to our kids bugging each other on purpose, specifically with weird yeah. noises, I I am torn between on one side of me. So the thing I always tell my kids is, and as I say this, I don't even know if I should share this because I don't know if this goes along with the philosophy we're even talking about. But I say, if something's, when I'm saying it's annoying, it's not aggressive, it's not harmful. Yeah, yeah. Literally, they're making an annoying noise to get a reaction. I tell yes. the person, when somebody does something that bothers me, I have two choices. I can ask nicely for them to stop. And then after that, they get to choose what they do. And I get to choose if I'm bugged at this point. So as a mom, I often just choose, I'm just going to choose not to let that bother me. And 90% of the time, the person stops making the annoying noise because they've lost their power, right? So, and I say that very simply. I just say, have you asked them nicely to stop? Oh, look, they didn't stop. Now you get to choose what happens inside of you if you're bugged or not. Because I want them to know that they have the power when it comes to just irritating things. They can either keep freaking out and their, their, other, their sibling is just going to keep going. Or if they just ignore it, it's going to stop. And it might not stop, but that they have a control inside of them on what they're going to let irritate them. So on one hand, I want them to learn that lesson. I would prefer not, actually, if I, when it comes to stuff like that, I would prefer not to have to give a, a, a boundary or anything about it. I would rather yeah. have them figure it out. So where can you just kind of speak to that? And do you think that it is like, let them manage that kind of stuff? Or would you step in with things like breaks in situations like that, or only if it escalates? Yeah. So I, I, I think this is a great topic for a couple of reasons. One is that it's there, there's a certain amount of, of things that you would just want them to manage themselves. It's like, it's just, to, just like you have to consequence a kid for being irritating. You have to consequence a kid, or at least there's a problem with a kid who's constantly complaining that the other person, you know, is irritating them. Your shirt irritates me. Your hair irritates me. The tone of your voice irritates me. Oh, I just think it's hilarious when they're like, you're breathing too loud or you're chewing your food too loud. I mean, they, they can just be irritated over anything, you know. Yeah. And, and so quite often I will just say, you know, figure that out. Like you can figure that out with your brother. Totally. Uh, that's it. Um, and, and other times, you know, it might be like, uh, this is what I like. You're making me work too hard. Mm-hmm. play somewhere else mm-hmm. you're just making me work too hard mm-hmm. i'm doing something here and you're making me work too hard with all this nonsense mm-hmm. you know yeah. go in another room and play in 15 minutes come back you can try it again and be here but right now i don't want to work this hard i love that kind of like sometimes it is kind of can feel like a break or like you're frustrating the behavior when it's like you know like separate you go here you go here it looks like this is getting to be a little bit too much if they go past because I know with my boys they go from the annoying noise to the one tries to ignore it they keep doing it and then they start punching each other like I know it's gonna be there (laughs) and so it's like maybe just take a second apart and I think that works really 
well to frustrate that behavior and kind of take away the power if they're having trouble figuring out themselves in that moment. So I really yeah, like and that. I think that's that's a great instinct, right? You may just tell one of the boys for the next ten minutes. I need you to play in in a separate room. Mm-hmm. In ten minutes, uh, you can switch rooms. Mm-hmm. But but you're making me work too hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't want to work this. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's good. That's very simple. It's like they're giving they're make they're giving you their prefrontal cortex, and they're like, manage me. Right. And you're right. like, no, this is your prefrontal cortex. Manage yourself. <laughs> I love that. I, I'm going to start using that line. You're making me work too hard. And I also I also loved your line of, it's okay to feel that way, but maybe journal about it instead. Yeah. Right, right, right. I'm going to start using that with my old, you know, my older girls. Yeah, it's, I love that. Because I like it because you're lightening it. You know, you're mm-hmm. lightening it up, but also saying, this isn't working for me. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah exactly. All right, Joe. Well, you are fantastic as usual. I think we need to have monthly check-ins with Joe for all our questions. <laughs> Can I just? I feel like this is more than any other one I've ever had. Where I'm like, hold on, I have an issue here. Can you please help me? With it? Yeah. <laughs> but thank so you. Well, you really. I. I felt. I feel like just in my own parenting, I've had a few like aha moments today, which is really exciting. Mm-hmm. With how many parenting books and how many honestly amazing authors we talked to. It's really fun to have a conversation where I've had probably three full light bulbs like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm going to try everything that way. So thank you. Great. Well, you guys are a blast to talk to. I'm having a good time. So you um, well. I'm usually not this uh, energetic. It's at eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, I've got energy for surfing, but usually not for talking at eight yeah. o'clock. So I'm doing pretty good. We're so magic. <laughs> yep. All right. Thank you, Joe. You were great. Brown cows. <laughs> 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 <laughs>